0: Welcome to the 281st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Rachel Kidman and Emily Smith Greenaway to discuss their new research on children losing parents in the pandemic a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 24th, 2021, there are 3,464,997 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In India, the death toll from COVID-19 is now reported as 303,751 lives lost. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, The Youngest Mourners, These Are the Children Who Have Lost a Parent to COVID-19. This appeared January 23rd of this year in NBC News by Elizabeth Chuck. Charlie Roos had two screens propped up on her desk. An iPad and a laptop. On one, the 15 year old was attending her remote high school classes. On the other, Charlie was glancing at a live stream of her dad set up by doctors in the Minnesota hospital where he was being treated for complications of COVID 19. I was kind of keeping my eye on both, and sometimes I would have to tune out school to hear what doctors were saying, said Charlie, whose family lives in the St. Paul suburb of Little Canada. I would say, Hey, what's his hemoglobin? What's his blood pressure look like? They were questions Charlie knew her father, Kyle Roos, a pharmacist, would be asking if he were not on a ventilator. Asking them for him, she hoped, would help him focus on getting better. But on December 23rd, doctors called Charlie's mother, Jacqueline Roos, to tell her Kyle had just hours to live. Jacqueline, Charlie, and Charlie's 10-year-old sister, Layla, were permitted to come to Kyle's bedside to say goodbye. Holding her father's frail hand, Charlie made a promise. Dad, she said through tears, I'm going to try my best to do everything I can to make you proud. As the death toll from the coronavirus pandemic increases, it is leaving a growing path of children who have lost parents in its wake. They are children for whom COVID-19 has stolen not just their mom or dad, but future memories too. A father walking them down the aisle at their wedding or a mother beaming at their graduation. Some of these children say they wish they were in heaven with their parents. Some struggle to eat or concentrate in school. Some have started therapy at only two years old. In Waldwick, New Jersey, five-year-old Mia Ordonez's father, Juan Ordonez, went to the hospital on the night of March 21, 2020, while Mia was sleeping due to his worsening COVID-19 symptoms. He died April 11, 2020, five days before her birthday. Afterward, Mia was terrified to go to sleep, said her mother, Diana Ardoñez. She went to sleep one day and dad never came home, she said. She just felt like if she went to sleep, there was a chance that she would wake up and mommy wouldn't be there or mommy could die. Experts say losing a loved one to COVID-19 brings a unique grief that can be particularly confusing for children. Families may not be able to hold a funeral, potentially hindering the process of accepting the reality of death child may be isolated due to schools not being open, meaning support systems are not physically present in their lives. A child may fear that other adults are going to die of COVID-19 too, a worry that can be difficult to assuage when there is no clear end to the pandemic. And among some circles, children may encounter stigma or even denial about the seriousness of the virus. Nobody says cancer isn't real, said Jessica Mojonos, Program Director for Children's Grief Connection, a nonprofit that provides camps and programs for bereaved children and families. The complications on top of complications on top of complications are just tearing my heart. Children who have lost a parent to the pandemic may face extra difficulties, not just with how they mourn, but with what are known as secondary losses, too. When someone close to you dies, you lose the person. That's the primary loss. But you also lose everything that person did, could have done, and might have done for you in the future, said Dr. David Schoenfeld, a developmental behavioral pediatrician who's the director of the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. During the pandemic, those secondary losses had become more pressing. In Detroit, Jeremiah Hill, age seven, lost two people close to him in less than Two months to COVID 19. His father and a cousin who used to babysit him, said his mother, Loretta Sales. After his dad, Eugene Hill, died April 5th, 2020, Jeremiah showed little emotion. In the months since, he has started bringing up the activities that he misses doing with him. Sales is never sure how to respond. It's really hard, Sales said. I just am like, yes, Jeremiah, you're correct, but there's really nothing you can say. Therapy has helped Jeremiah start to process his feelings. Once the pandemic ends, Sales plans to start start taking him to church, something Jeremiah misses doing most with his father. Meanwhile, in Phoenix, when Myra Milan Angulo, a single mother, died December 14th, she left behind six children, ages 6 to 25. Her oldest, Vanessa Perez, is now the caregiver for her younger siblings. Helping with their remote school and figuring out how she will stay on top of the family's expenses. At the same time, she's trying to soothe the grief of her sister and four brothers while also dealing with her own. Her youngest sibling, Melanie, brings their mother up frequently, Perez said. If we pass by somewhere, she's like, Oh, mommy used to take me there. I put on a black sweater the other day and she said, Oh, that's like mommy's. She mentions her all the time. She says she misses her, Perez said. I try to be as cheerful as possible and say, hey, yeah, you're right, or yeah, you and mommy had lunch dates there, she said, but it breaks my heart on the inside. For Odoñez, joining a Facebook group for young widows and widowers who lost their spouses to COVID-19 has helped. She's become friendly with the creator of the group, Pamela Addison, who happens to live in her, a group founded by Pamela Addison, who happens to live in her New Jersey town. Addison's husband, Martin Addison, died of the coronavirus April 29, 2020, leaving Addison with their two young children, Elsie, two, and Graham, 14 months. After his death, Elsie wouldn't really eat. Sometimes she would just sit stare, Addison said. Addison put Elsie in therapy and entered therapy herself as well, in part to learn how to help her children with their emotions. When Elsie gets agitated, Addison said she validates it's okay to be sad, it's okay to be upset, it's okay to feel this way. In Minnesota, 15-year-old Charlie Roos's mother, Jacqueline Roos, has simple rules for herself and her two girls to help them from spiraling into depression. Every day, everyone must shower, leave the house, even if it's just to walk the dog, spend 10 minutes cleaning, and talk to someone outside their household. For the most part, they've been holding each other accountable. The family is slowly adjusting to life without Kyle. They used to eat dinner around 9:15 p.m. when he got home from his shift at the pharmacy. Now, Ruth said they eat dinner at 6.30 or 7 p.m., normal dinner time for other families, but a foreign time to theirs that makes their father's absence more pronounced each evening. My dad was such a wonderful person and a wonderful example of giving an abundance of love to everyone, Charlie said. He was such an amazing person that I'm so glad that I got to spend even 15 years of my life with him, she added. I wouldn't change it for the world. Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion for today. Let me introduce you to my guests, Dr. Rachel Kidman. Dr. Rachel Kidman is an associate professor in the medical school at Stony Brook University and teaches in their program in public health. She's a social epidemiologist with 15 years of research experience focused on vulnerable children and adolescents. Much of her research has examined how the HIV AIDS epidemic has affected children. For example, she's examined the health and educational outcomes for children. Who were orphaned by the epidemic. Her current projects look at the cycle between childhood adversity and HIV. She leads an NIH funded project to examine the role of childhood adversities on the emergence of HIV risks during adolescence in rural Malawi. She also directs an NIH funded study to estimate the impact of violence on HIV transmission using mobile diaries among HIV infected and non infected male adolescents. In Soweto, South Africa. My second guest is Emily Smith Greenaway. Dr. Smith Greenaway is an associate professor of sociology and spatial sciences at the University of Southern California. She has a PhD in sociology and demography. Her international research focuses on health and mortality. In much of her current research, she's studying the levels and consequences of mortality in people's family and social networks. Rachel Kidman and Emily Smith Greenaway, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Scott.
0: I'd like to start the way I generally do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Rachel, can I start with you on that, please?
1: Sure. I'm in Stony Brook, New York, uh, where we were the center of uh, the pandemic in in, March and April of last year. And so things are better here. Um, the rates are going way down uh, compared to where they were, but they're still uncomfortably high for my liking.
0: What's the situation on the campus there, Rachel? Uh, things now return back to something you would call a uh, pre pandemic normal?
1: No, but we're working on it. Um, you know, this year most classes were online. I taught online all year. Uh, the program in public health where I teach was fully online. There were some students on campus uh, and some students in the classroom, depending on the course. Um, But most students were online this year. However, we did just this week have an in-person graduation where you had to show either a vaccination or a COVID negative uh, result in order to go. And, you know, there's a fully you know, um, celebratory outdoor graduation. So things are starting to get back to normal. And in the fall, we hope to have everybody back in the classroom uh, as well.
0: Just listening to you describe that graduation, I, I can't think of the last time I got excited to think about, I mean, when you're in, when you're in higher ed a long time, and every graduation is special, but they kind of come and go. And I thought, wow, I'd really like to go to a graduation. Have you, did you have the chance to go?
1: I wasn't able to go this year. We actually did a second online uh, event to our event for our public health students um, as well, because not everybody felt comfortable still going to a large event, even though it was outside, which I completely understand. Um, And so we had a nice celebration actually with everybody and their families uh, over Zoom as we've been, been getting together all year. Um, but it was nice to see even the photographs of the faculty and students who are able to and felt comfortable going and, and seeing a little bit of normalcy and, and smiles in people's faces again. Um, so,
0: What a positive note. Thank you for that. Emily, uh, turning to you, what's the situation? Where are you calling from and what's the situation looking like there?
2: Yeah, so I'm calling in from Los Angeles County. Um, You know, similar to what Rachel expressed, things are feeling more hopeful here. You know, there's some indication that the pandemic is momentarily abating. Um, This month, we've had a few days of no new deaths reported, which has been this really remarkable thing to celebrate in our county of, you know, over 10 million people. Um, And on average, that deaths have been about 30 per day, so still, you know, casual of the pandemic certainly still you know ongoing but um, vaccination rates are accelerating we have very low levels of vaccine hesitancy here which is really helping us in la and in california more generally certainly there's still inequities along racial and ethnic um lines in terms of, you know, vaccination rates. Um, but things are seeming up, you know, schools have been back in session. Uh, my university has not been, we've still been fully virtual, um, but also recently had a celebration where people were able to come in person and join. Um, so there is, you know, a heading into our kind of full reopening, which is set for June 15th. There's, you know, a, a real sense of hope um, that things have improved dramatically and are really holding in a favorable way.
0: Uh, these notes of hope are good to start with, especially considering the gravity of the discussion we're here to talk about today. So thank you both for that. Uh, I'd like to talk. start by talking about some recent research that you published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics that came out in April, titled Estimates and Projections of COVID-19 and Parental Death in the United States, which you did with colleagues Rachel Margolis and Ashton Verdery. And a program note, Ashton Verdery was a guest on COVID calls a couple months back, and people can find that episode if they'd like to hear about the first part of this work, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit. But um, just to sort of set the landscape for us, Rachel, could you start, tell us what this work is about?
1: Uh, Sure. I mean, you mentioned this at the start of your program. You look every day at the number of people who have died uh, and that growing count, and Most of us just see that count and and it's it's profound and don't necessarily go that next step to worry about who's been left behind. Um, But I think our group was really concerned in particular about the kids who are left behind for this paper. Uh, You know, we haven't seen a lot of mention of how many kids uh, are being left behind, are being orphaned due to COVID. It just, it hasn't been a focus. We've had a lot of anecdotal reports in the media, but sort of one-offs, not a focus on the sheer number. Um, I think mostly because deaths have been primarily in the elderly, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. But there's been this sizable number of deaths in people who are in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s Ages where people are likely to have children. These are parents. So, Emily and my co authors and I knew there was this growing population of bereaved children. Uh, they had done some work on bereavement more generally already in the pandemic. And we felt it was really important to highlight just how large this population was. So, this paper estimated the number of kids who had lost a parent, at least one parent through February of this year, and we found about 40,000 kids had likely lost a parent uh, during the COVID pandemic due either directly to COVID or because of excess deaths due to COVID. And that's about a 20% jump over what we would expect for parental death uh, in a normal year. Um, And I want to emphasize that these numbers are already out of date. I mean, we did this and we we submitted this paper and every time uh, we went through a review and it was accepted, we had to keep up Updating these numbers because the pandemic was just growing exponentially. Um, you know, now uh, I think we're at, I think you said 585,000 or so deaths due to COVID. Um, that's 100,000 more than there were when we published this article. It just came out last month and it's already out of date. So the number of orphans due to COVID uh, in the U.S. is probably closer to 50,000 now.
0: Emily, let me bring you in. Uh, this you published a paper last summer that I think came in the um, proceedings in the National Academy of Sciences, if I'm correct, and introduced this concept of a bereavement multiplier. And I remember, I actually remember distinctly where I was when I read this, because it snapped a lot of things into focus for me as a person who was following these statistics that were flowing at us every day and feeling like they couldn't possibly be capturing um, many of the things that would turn out to be in the long run, perhaps really important about this pandemic. So that's Where I first learned of your work, maybe you could say a little bit about how this work extends that, how it builds on the previous work?
2: Yeah, you know, well, I'm I'm so happy that Rachel had the foresight to really think about the need to kind of emphasize the effects of um, death on kids in particular. So in some ways, you know, what we report on in this recent JAMA Pediatrics is kind of buried in the initial project, but you can't get to that estimate directly. And, you know, Rachel had their wherewithal to realize, you know, that we should really think about spotlighting this in particular and really drawing attention to this particular aspect of the finding. But as you said, Scott, this original project was really an an attempt to try to kind of rescale the size and scope of the mortality crisis that our country was at that point really just facing down. So, you know, as Rachel expressed, we see this rising death toll and we see these numbers, but it really doesn't give us a sense of how many, you know, are are left in the shadows of these deaths. And this is something that I've been thinking a lot about in other work, you know, pre-pandemic. And Ashton and Rachel had done all of this fantastic work using demographic micro simulations to study kinlessness and, and, and to project, um, you know, how kind of kinship structures are changing in America. So very early in the pandemic, you know, with my interest in bereavement and all of the fantastic work that they have been doing, we realized that, you know, we had on our hands this way to kind of, you know, really, um, Shed light on a different dimension of the mortality crisis that wasn't, you know, being enumerated effectively. And so what we do in this study is um, we really started in kind of a projection mindset, right, to say, OK, you know, if 200,000 people die, how will this refract in kinship structures? You know, how many people in, in a family will actually be touched by this death, because you know, one death that one loss of one life is, is a person to so many more people in their family. Um, and, and we could do that with this demographic micro-simulation approach, which is a forward-looking you know, methodology that allows you to look at projections and also to kind of overlay different scenarios onto um, family systems to see how they really play out in the family. And so with this kind of projection mindset. Um, in the works, you know, we were interested in seeing, you know, if 200,000 people die, if 400,000 people die, what will this look like? But then we went one step further to kind of actually go a step back from the projection mindset and to say, you know, well, how does, you know, can we generate a ratio? Right to say, you know, kind of regardless of the eventual epidemiological trajectory of the pandemic, how many people on average will be grieving, you know, for each COVID nineteen death, and so this is this concept of a multiplier, right? Um, and so what we found is that on average, each COVID nineteen death leaves about nine individuals suffering the loss of a close relative, defined as a grandparent, parent, sibling, spouse, or child. And so what this tells us, right, is that you know the the size and scope of the mortality crisis is far higher um, than looking at deaths as if, you know, deaths belong to individuals, right? When we actually account for how many individuals um, are left in the wake of these deaths. So as of today, which with about 590,000 lives lost in the U.S., we estimate, you know, about 5.3 million Americans have lost a close relative to the pandemic. And something else that this work has really done, you know, in addition to kind of rescaling the size and the scope of this, was to shed light on, you know, a, a distinct age gradient. You know, as Rachel said, and as Rachel had, um, you know, the the uh, mindset of the need to really draw attention to kids in particular. In the first project, we just wanted to show how many young adults are suffering losses. You know, very early in the pandemic, this narrative emerged that, you know, this is a crisis really affecting older adults. But, you know, we know that those older adults are grandparents and parents to younger people. And so we wanted to demonstrate how, you know, when you actually look at bereavement, we see a really different age gradient emerge. Um,
0: That's just thank you for going into into that detail on that. And just I want to, Emily, just stay with you for one second. How do you define bereavement? I mean, it, it, because you're talking about the multiplier being nine, so nine lives touched, impacted um, by one death, any death, in this case, a COVID death. What are the kinds of ways we should be thinking about the impact of what bereavement is? It might be It's a term I think everybody sort of heard, but maybe they haven't thought about used in this very kind of specific way.
2: Yeah, so we're talking specifically about family bereavement just defined by the death of a close family member. Um, so c- certainly you can think about bereavement as a process, right, and, and um, you know, grief as a process. But here we're just defining bereavement as the loss of a, of a family member and so when we focus on a mortality crisis from a bereavement perspective we see um, you know just how many people are affected by each death now of course our study um, even the more comprehensive study that we did th- on this is still limited right we're only talking about close relatives we're not getting at you know extended family members we're not getting at other you know co-workers friends neighbors um, so certainly there's more bereavement going on in our country as a result of the pandemic than even our estimates allow us to enumerate.
0: Rachel, just to bring you back in on, on this and just recovering a little bit of the context from last summer, and unfortunately, I think even still to now, this idea of the public discourse that COVID was something that affects older people. Yeah. And that felt incomplete, I think, to a lot of us even at the time, but we didn't have a way to capture that. And you went right at that in this work.
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually come from a background of doing research on HIV in children. And so a lot of my focus has been on how does this large epidemic of HIV affect kids? Uh, Not necessarily infected, you know, with HIV, but affected. They've lost parents, they're living with chronically ill uh, caregivers or other relatives, there's economic strain. And so that all came rushing back Um, when I would read these numbers about COVID mortality. And I kept wondering about the kids and whether the pandemic was having this same toll. Uh, You know, and I I started to think about how I might come up with some estimates of how many children were affected. And when I started to look if anybody had created models yet, um, I actually came across the work of of these colleagues who I knew uh, and, and reached out because they had these fabulous models and ways of looking at this. This, you know, both the kinship models and, and Emily's idea of this bereavement estimator. Um, but the paper didn't specifically say how many people were under 18 who had lost a loved one. And I wanted to know how many children had actually lost a parent. I thought it was really critical to bring that to the fore. All of these losses are critical and they're important, Um, but I wanted to hone in just for this uh, specific uh, piece on how many kids have lost a parent, because I think it's important to emphasize the enormity of that loss.
0: So in previous research, then you brought to this already a sensibility of the impact of AIDS death on children. And could you say a little bit more about some of those findings? I mean, how do we see that sort of marked out over time in society?
1: Sure. I mean, the scale of the HIV pandemic was huge over the last 40 years, and we've learned a lot about the impact on kids. Um, You know, and at first we were really focusing on kids who had lost a parent, just as I am here, but we've learned that there are so many more impacts. But even if we just focus on the issue of orphanhood, I mean, these children are less likely to complete school. They drop out at early ages. They are... um, It more likely to be in poverty. They're more likely to suffer sexual and physical abuse. Uh, You can sort of go on and on. There are a lot of impacts of losing a parent uh, and some variations depending on whether you're losing a mom or dad or both parents. Um, And we've learned a lot also about uh, how to... Um, build resilience and strengthen the families that surround these kids. Um, So I I think there are a lot of lessons we can take from the HIV epidemic and apply in this context. We're not starting from scratch. And I think those lessons will be really important when we look at programming and policy uh, that can support the kids who are now losing parents to COVID.
0: a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking today with Rachel Kidman and Emily Smith-Greenaway about the impact of COVID-19 parental losses on children. Emily, kind of a basic question, um, but I'm sure it has a a complicated answer, is uh, are COVID deaths across the board undercounted?
2: That's certainly a concern, you know, and and that absolutely, right, that there is a very real concern that by only focusing on COVID-19 mortality specifically, one, that we could be missing deaths that are actually due to COVID-19, but also that we've just seen this increase in excess mortality, right, just deaths are overall higher. Um, And that was one thing that we talked about in this project and worked to include is, you know, the multipliers that we see work pretty comparably when we consider all excess mortality, not just deaths specifically classified as COVID-19. But certainly there's no fear that there's an overcount of COVID-19 mortality, as has been um, erroneously reported, you know, at various times during the pandemic. But if anything, you know, a, a very real concern about undercounts, but also, like I said, just uh, that we're seeing this, you know, dramatic rise in excess mortality in our country, in particular.
0: So, in the recent work, then it's the parental bereavement multiplier is is the new concept. I think if I've got the the term right there. What sort of inequalities does the does the the new work sort of show us? I know some of the older work suggested pretty strongly that there were racial inequalities, for example, in the bereavement multiplier more generally.
2: Go ahead, Rachel.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think we've had a stark reckoning in this country um, you know, through the COVID pandemic, uh, there are really critical health disparities in almost any outcome we look at in the US. And I think the COVID pandemic has really brought it to the fore. So we know the burden of mortality isn't shared equally. There are really these strong racial and economic disparities. Um, so it's not surprising we find that orphanhoods is also disproportionately experienced by children of color. Um, we have some limitations to our study in that we're only able to break out. Um, Uh, you know, black and white populations. Um, But while black children make up about 14% of kids in this country, we found they made up about 20% of those who had lost a parent this year to COVID. So we're seeing the same stark disparities in this outcome as we do in the overall burden of mortality. Um, And just uh, to bring it back to Emily's multiplier, it's a little easier in this case to flip it on its head and say for every 13 deaths in this country, one child is losing a parent. And when you think about the COVID pandemic as, as we, we keep harking back to as this you know, uh, pandemic affecting the elderly, that doesn't quite square with the idea that for every 13 deaths, one child is losing a parent. Um, and so, um I think it's it's critical. I think you know Emily's idea of having this multiplier uh, about really being able to take this from these large numbers to a really definitive uh, number of how many people are feeling that impact every time someone dies, um, you know brings it a little bit closer to home.
0: And there must be other impacts here as well. I don't know if you can get at this kind of data in the work you're doing, but is there any way to estimate how many of these children? May have also had COVID, and maybe in addition to that, how many also lost grandparents in the in the middle of the pandemic as as well? Emily, let me give you the first um, pass at that at those questions.
2: Certainly, you know, I think the pandemic is, you know, a context, a crisis that's just ripe for kind of cumulative negative effects, right? We, we see, um, and this is something we talked a lot about when thinking about the implications of parental death during a pandemic. These are kids that are not only, you know, experiencing the premature death of a parent, but they're doing so at a time when we're, you know, forced into more physical separation than we've ever experienced as a country. We can't come together to mourn and grieve kids are are stuck on Zoom school um, and they themselves may have gotten sick or may be still navigating having a grandparent ill or hospitalized. And so we don't in this project to get at that kind of potential for the this, you know, cumulative kind of pile on effect to the multiple faces of this crisis we are really taking kind of the most extreme outcome, right? You know, death and saying and and demonstrating just the the scale of it. Now, in terms of your question of, well, you know, we do hear these cases in the media of um, clustering of deaths within families. And and those stories are just so incredibly tragic. You know, when an elderly parent has lost multiple kids or, you know, someone's lost a a father and an uncle and, and are coping with multiple relatives, right? The whole family system has been affected um that's certainly something um that is real but we we estimate you know kind of zooming out right at at, at the aggregate population level that kind of clustering is quite rare. Um, We don't account for it in our models. That's also, you know, something you could think of as a limitation. Um, But um, in the simulations and robustness checks that Ashton did with the data, we feel confident that that kind of um, pylon effect is is really an outlier kind of um, experience in the pandemic.
1: But I do want to point out also that the Emily did look at how many kids have lost a grandparent and I think you found it was about 2 million kids under 18 and you know limitation of our research is that we looked at parents, we looked at how many parents Mm -hmm. have been lost, Um, but parents aren't the only caregivers. Very often, children are in the care of a grandparent or an aunt or a cousin or an older sibling, um, and we don't know how many have lost that primary caregiver, um, you know, essentially those people who are functioning as parents. And we also don't know how many kids are residing with grandparents or other relatives who have now pos- passed away, so they've lost this secondary caregiver. Um, and I think that's that's incredibly critical. They play an important role in these children's lives as well. So what we've done is very limited, and as we go forward, more and more research will come out showing some of these other profound impacts, I'm sure. Um, And and we need to be prepared not only to look at those um, so that, you know, we capture them and bring them to people's attention, but also are ready to respond to all of these different kinds of impacts.
2: Yeah, I'm happy you jumped in there, Rachel. Right. Because in the in the first paper, we do have estimates of grand parental death specifically, you know, we we're not mm-hmm. estimating, you know, how many kids have lost both parents and grandparents. But the grand parental death burden among 20 to 29 year olds um, is very, very high. It's kind of the, the highest bereavement burden that we see through the pandemic. That is kind of the the um, classic type of loss that we're seeing is, you know, younger people losing grandparents. Um, uh, so, and and among young adults in particular, so 20 to 29-year-olds, the bereavement multiplier is about 1.25 or 1.3. So, there's mm-hmm. just, you know, so much loss of, of grandparents in particular among, among younger adults.
0: And I, I guess just to stay with that for a second, I mean, that's... Um People might be too quick to dismiss that, you know, if we're looking only at, you know, whether or not someone's going to lose their home or they're losing a parent, that so they're losing a loss of income. I mean, those are certainly important, but it's, I think sometimes throughout this pandemic, it's important just to pause for a second and say, well, wait a minute. Like losing a grandparent is a terrible thing, and even if you're not relying on them for income, and and so just to sit with that for a second. So those numbers are really staggering. I think. And then another thing that I, I wonder how we can capture that. So that means also, you know, if children are losing a grandparent, their parent is losing a parent. I mean, the focus is on younger kids, but I mean, it's ripples through the entire family, right? I mean, a parent losing a parent also exacerbates the relationship between the parent and child. And I'm I'm out of my depth here in terms of how to even make sense of these impacts, but the way you're describing it, it's a complicated system of bereavement. Emily, let me just throw that to you first.
2: I think that's a great point, Scott, right? Like we're adopting in this most recent paper, the perspective of very young kids. But, you know, think about how many parents are affected or spouses. So so when you lose someone in a family system, I mean, families are systems, right? So multiple actors are affected. And so you not only are grieving the loss of the relative yourself, but you're also kind of coping with the fact that many in your family are also grieving that death. And so these losses, you know, really leave holes in these family systems that, you know, can't be patched and have multiple direct, but also, you know, many indirect and and very pernicious effects that often are lingering. You know, we see, um, you know, as Rachel spoke of, we see that the implications of experiencing a parent die prematurely, you know, are really lasting and far reaching. Um, So yes, absolutely. Multiple people affected simultaneously, which kind of has this pile on effect to, you know, how it, it affects any single family member.
0: And in the news article I, I read at the top of the program, they delineate between sort of primary effects and secondary effects. And I think we've been talking about that a little bit, but Rachel, let me bring you in on, on that. Can we speak a little bit more clearly about what some of the secondary effects of losing a parent are?
1: Sure. And, you know, I, I mentioned a few of them, but I think, uh, you know, we can start with um, you know, grief that goes beyond the normal grief into depression, uh, or even PTSD. In this case, um, there are heightened risks for suicidality, both during childhood and adolescence, and also across the life course. You know, this is the loss of a parent, considered an adverse childhood experience, um, piled on with a bunch of other adverse childhood experiences, that really raises the risk of premature death for that that child down the road, Um, there are educational outcomes. You know, cognitive deficits that can, can result from a lot of accumulation of adversity. But even in the short term, there are people who aren't going to go back to school, kids who are out of school, who don't have a parent now pushing them to go back, uh, even when in-person classes may resume. Um, so school dropout is more common, and that affects trajectories and in, in, you know, their job placement throughout their life and their earnings. Um, we're also seeing breadwinners die. And so these families are often being plunged into poverty poverty. And a lot of these deaths are happening in communities that are already under-resourced. where poverty was m- perhaps more common, where there aren't resources, supports uh, in place in these communities that can help um, really lift them out of poverty, make sure the kids are in school, make sure they have the mental health resources they need. And so, you know, going forward, um, we need to prevent more deaths, obviously, through, uh, you know, really making sure everybody who can is vaccinated. Um, but we also have to really have supports in place to deal with this secondary effects, uh, and really try and mitigate um, as much as we can the impact of these deaths on children.
0: Let's turn a little bit to some discussion of of what can be done here, now that we've got a a sense of the research and the the really um, staggering impacts that can be expected. And you both, in combination with Ashton Berdery, published an op-ed in the Washington Post, I think time to come out Um, around the time that this research did, and I think people, I'll make sure that I tweet the link to that out again. People should definitely read um, this opinion piece because it distills a lot of the research, but it's also a call for action. It appeared in the Washington Post under the title COVID-19 has killed the parents of thousands of children. We must support them. This appeared April the 6th of this year, and I'm just going to read one sentence from it. You say, these children need our help. Universal policies to support vulnerable families are a good start, Many of President Biden's policy proposals address the collateral damage parental death can cause, such as food insecurity and an absence of high quality, affordable childcare. High on our priority list would be providing the resources to open schools safely. So, Emily, let me bring you in first on that, just as sort of a, a call on how we transform this research into actual policy interventions that we can be asking for.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Scott. I mean, that's the the hope of our work, right, that we'll actually see it have some impact. And, and, you know, one of the motivations for this work, too, is just to simply bring knowledge to the fact of how many kids have been affected. You know, we don't have this um, centralized way of tracking how many kids have actually lost a parent. I mean, we really are providing the only estimates. So one very important outcome of this work is, you know, generating some kind of apparatus that just tracks these kids, you know, and it is important to kind of understand. And even though there is, you know, a very rich literature on the adverse consequences of parental death, there is, you know, some argument to be made for the particular need to actually track these kids and see what their outcomes are, right? Because there is concern that how they experience and cope with parental death could be, um, you know, even less favorable than in a typical year because of the kind of pile on effect that we talked about in terms of navigating these losses in the context of a pandemic. And so in addition to, you know, really trying to actually track these kids and and get a sense of how many have been affected. We also talked about in the op-ed the potential for the federal government to actually task an organization with, you know, providing support, you know, just um, uh, having advocates for these kids. I mean, there are federal benefits available in many cases, and, and families often don't know how to navigate them. There's a very high administrative burden to accessing them. So, you know, one very simple thing would be to simply, you know, have advocates that help families navigate these complex Um, systems where they can access resources. And I'll let Rachel talk more about, you know, some other resources that could be implemented to kind of supplement what's already available.
0: Sure, Rachel, could you extend on that uh, discussion a little bit?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think you know, we, you brought up schools. So let me, let me start there because I think Emily started to talk about some of the national policies that might be there to support them economically. And we need to grow those. Those are even more urgent right now for kids, you know, who have lost a parent. But I also think we need to be thinking about how to support their social and emotional health. And schools are really critical, as you mentioned. Um, you know, it, Having schools open means kids have a chance to socialize with their friends, be supported by caring adults. That's an informal support. You know, the teachers, the social workers, the guidance counselors who see them every day can assess how they're doing. uh, And if need be, they can help them access more specialized care. Um, And uh, not all of these children will need that, but a lot of the kids will need interventions that really do help them deal with their grief and that can prevent more severe mental health consequences. Um, you know, neither of us are psychologists, but there are psychologists who have developed these brief interventions or longer interventions that can reduce, you know, traumatic grief. Um, and we need to make these interventions specifically evidence-based interventions, um, that work to reduce this grief really re- readily available. Um, You know, I think we need more mental health services readily available. That's something else the the pandemic has probably highlighted. It's not just the kids who have lost a parent, though they certainly need help. It's a lot of other kids who are struggling with COVID illness in their family or with anxiety around the pandemic who are going to need these services. Um, And they're going to need, you know, individual counseling now and and maybe in the future. And we need to be ready to fund a response adequately to the scale of their needs. And we need to have evidence-based guidelines out there. We need to be training more social workers and counselors in the schools. You know, that's our front line. Uh, We have to really, really be supporting them. and you know in addition to providing mental health support to kids we also need to be taking care of the caregivers. You know you mentioned earlier that a lot of people are losing their parents, you know adults are losing their parents or loved ones. In this case a lot of the the caregivers of these children are the, the surviving spouse right. or you know maybe they're the grandparent who just lost a child and those people need support. They also need some training on positive parenting strategies in some cases or or how best to help children and teens grieve. I I certainly wouldn't know where to start with my own kids if I lost my spouse. And so Congress has already approved uh, funding for for things like um, funeral expenses due to COVID. Mm -hmm. And I think a natural next step would be to approve more funding and really have targeted support for those who
2: are grieving uh, in in this domain. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, Emily, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I was just going to jump in and say, too, you know, in some ways, the, you know, the um, lack of a really comprehensive response speaks, too, to just how little bereavement care we have in this country and how little bereavement support there is. You know, we don't have federally mandated bereavement leave, right? So, you know, outside of the context of the pandemic, I think I'm hopeful that this is kind of this... um, you know, uh, the, we this pandemic, you know, a silver lining to it is that we see and get more attention on the need to really care for people who have recently suffered losses in the form of, you know, economic support, um, institutional support, and also um, mental health support in particular.
0: Emily, you really anticipated kind of where I wanted to go next with this, which is that you're working at a large scale here. I mean, this is a big data set that you're pulling it up, but we sort of bring it down to the level of individual families and individuals. Um, Who are the advocates here? I mean, how do you expect this to come about? Making programs available, making funds available, absolutely seems crucial But usually in public health issues, there has to be a strong advocacy that gets very political about this, that tells these stories in meaningful ways that actually gets people to say, oh, I didn't realize that was a problem. Let me help. What should we look for in that regard?
2: Yeah, well, certainly, you know, I'm a demographer, not a policy person. And so I do feel like I'm, you know, swimming a little outside of my comfort zone here. But, you know, in the in the op-ed, we did talk about tasking the Department of Health and Human Services with this kind of role. You know, this is a department that does, you know, provide a lot of services, federally mandated services for families. So we certainly think it's easy for our federal government to imagine how to extend this, you know, and to really create federal advocates. But the first step is you need to know You know and identify which families have been affected, right? Um, And and that's kind of what we're doing here is just saying, look, this is a lot of kids, you know, shifting that narrative away from um, this being a mortality crisis concentrated among older adults to, you know, really shine light on, yes, it's a very small percent of younger adults dying from COVID-19. But that small percent literally translates into tens of thousands of Americans. And so this is, you know, a a crisis that is at a scale that really mandates a federal response of some sort. Right. And and certainly, you know, as a demographer, I don't feel comfortable being the person to say precisely what that looks like. Um, But but we clearly need need some federal um, response here.
1: And I do want to give credit to you know the administration for passing a lot of things with Congress that do benefit vulnerable families. Um, you know, having uh, you know the the child tax credit be extended to to families who are um, well below the poverty line will help raise kids out of poverty and put food on the table. And there are more policies um, coming down the line that will help all of these families. And while they're universally targeted, Uh, Those who really need it, who have lost a parent, who are struggling, at least from the economic point of view, uh, will be lifted up. And there are so many other families who have lost jobs or loved ones, if not parents, to this who will be helped as well. And so we are making some progress on that front. Uh, Much more needs to be done, you know, as we've talked about, I think, on the social and emotional front. But money is going to schools, at least to reopen, and so there is access to guidance counselors or school social workers. So we're moving in the right direction. But I do think a more robust response needs to be in place to help um, both sort of the the group that we're talking about, those who have been orphaned, but also the kids who are struggling with anxiety, who have mm-hmm. um, you know, lost a par- uh, sorry another loved one, or you know just had the trauma of having a parent hospitalized and not knowing if they're ever going to come home. I think there are so many kids who need help. So putting these mental health supports or other bereavement leave, you know, in place will help the kids now who have lost parents, will help the wider group who are struggling, and will help kids in the future who may lose lose parents. We're not done. And, you know, as Emily keeps saying, this isn't just about the mortality crisis. Well, it's not just about 2020 and 2021. These kids are going to need support in 2022 and 2028. Um, you know, this is a long-standing response that we need to to raise. Um, and our president has experience. He's helped guided you know, his young sons after the loss of their mother and he and the first lady were there for their grandchildren after the death of Bo Biden. So this is something that, you know, hopefully will, you know, um, he understands, but hopefully will strike a chord with many other legislators, many other people involved in the federal government because most people have been affected by COVID Uh, And for parents out there, you know, just thinking about what would happen to their own kids if they passed away. I'm hoping that, you know, just understanding how widespread this phenomena is will help bring people to the table to start discussing things like bereavement leave.
0: You know, we've focused our attention here on death. But I wonder also, is there good research out there on, just on the impact, and Rachel, I'll start with you on this, on the impact of having a, a parent who's who's been very sick. And I'm thinking here about long COVID. And last week I had a, a discussion with two advocates for long COVID sufferers, two people who are living in the U.K. and in the Netherlands with long COVID um and, you know, as I was having those discussions, I was thinking, what are the reverberations of this through the family as well, mm-hmm. if you can't work? Some of them might look quite similar, I think, as we think about your multiplier and these sort of secondary effects, the mental health stress on the family, um, you know, having to rely on other loved ones to come in and provide care, and then the loss of income. I'm wondering if long COVID is something we can be thinking about in this in this regard as well. Rachel, let me start with you on that.
1: I think that's an excellent point. And there is research out there on, on living with somebody who's chronically ill and, and certainly on living with a parent who has HIV and may be chronically ill. Um, and in some cases, the mental health toll can be even greater uh, living with someone, you know, especially a parent, who's so ill. Um, again, because you're worried all the time about what's going to happen to them, whether they're going to survive. Uh, and for kids who almost lost a parent to, to COVID, um, but whose parent was returned to them, but very sick and may have this long COVID, I can only imagine that there are going to be ramifications. Um, I don't know if anybody is working on that at the moment, but it's certainly an area that I think uh, we will need to look at in the future.
0: Emily, you said a a minute ago, and I want to be cognizant, you you pointed out you you don't want to swim too much in the policy Mm -hmm. lane of the pool, and I respect that. However, you did point out something that the United States doesn't have bereavement, leave and and we don't have much in the sense of sort of policy there to support um, people who are going through a significant loss like this i mean simple question why not
2: yeah, you know, I mean, and this is a global problem, really. And and I've been doing more work on this globally and thinking about, one, just enumerating how many families are affected by premature death. I've been working specifically on young kids. Um, but, you know, it's really striking to see how few countries have, you know, mandated bereavement leave. And I'm hoping, you know, that this will, and, and you ask, you know, why is that the case? I mean, we, we do see that in the U.S. in particular, we're kind of experiencing this kind of muted you know, nature to our grief. We grief in, and, and we grieve the loss of others, really in, in privacy, and, and we don't often have a lot of institutional support. But I'm hoping that this will kind of be, you know, a historical point where we see the tide shift to um, more recognition. And certainly, there's a fantastic organization, Evermore, that is working very much on this topic. You know, trying to get more. Um, you know, a clear bereavement related policy in place um, in the U.S. and also potentially on the international scale.
0: So, Our focus to this point has been about the United States, but I wonder if we could somehow speculate or maybe we already know things about bereavement and this pandemic in other countries. I mean, the data coming in from Brazil and India um, is just really staggering. And I I, want, I can't help but think these countries are going to be facing a similar set of problems that you've discovered in your research. Rachel, can you comment to that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I can only think that they are facing the same set of circumstances and the same uh, devastating consequences as the U.S. is. The U.S. is still leading the global community in the number of you know cumulative COVID deaths, um, but Brazil is unfortunately catching up very quickly with about 450,000 deaths, I think. And India stands at 300,000. Um, officially, at least, these numbers may be higher. Um, but I have no doubt that there are many orphans in these countries. Uh, and in regions where you know, parental death is already higher, where kids have already potentially lost a parent and medical care is less available, there are probably gonna be more kids who are now losing their second parent, who are losing both parents. Um, We looked specifically at the US, but there is another group led by Susan Hillis at the CDC who has been working on orphanhood estimates globally. I don't believe their work is published yet, but I think they focused on about 18 countries, including Brazil and India. And if I recall correctly, the numbers of orphans um, were even higher in those countries and those contexts than they were in the U.S. And, you know, I would just assume because the mortality has been greater at younger ages in those contexts. But the toll the pandemic has taken is just enormous and and I think their estimate was about half a million kids globally may have already lost a parent Um, so this is something that is unfortunately incredibly universal and that all countries are going to be dealing with and hopefully learning from each other in terms of programs and policies that work because most kids are resilient. You know, we talk about the consequences and the negative impacts, but I do want to to emphasize that most kids are resilient and can thrive with the right support, even after such a monumental loss.
0: Almost up on time here with my guests, Rachel Kidman and Emily Smith-Greenaway. I have just a couple of quick notes as we're closing out. One is, is really just about, and I think a lot of researchers are probably imagining, anticipating this question, um, how you keep your own endurance through this kind of work? Um, even in this discussion, there's so many dimensions of loss that I hadn't fully comprehended until we started talking. Um, how do you keep your own, you know, sort of sense of balance through doing this kind of work? Emily?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say, Scott, that this is a release, you know, to be able to contribute to the conversation and and to, you know, bring our disciplinary perspective, our expertise and to offer something new. Um, you know, I, I find it to be really comforting and, and the joy of working with other scientists, you know, to do collaborative work on this topic. Um, And, you know, just throughout the duration of the pandemic, I've been so thankful for people like you, you know, you've created this whole COVID calls that we will be able to access after the pandemic abates. I mean, you're, you know, doing such fantastic work and and, you know, the many journalists, the many public health officials, you know, all of the fantastic professionals, you know, even as we're all dealing with our own, you know, elements of, of living through this. Um, the ability to just be here and to be able to contribute to the conversation has been something that has made me feel very thankful and and honestly has been a bright spot throughout what has otherwise been a very, very gray year.
0: Thank you for those kind words. And you've summarized a lot of how I feel too, which is that, you know, at least every day, I know I'm going to talk to some brilliant people who are trying to um bend the curve uh, a little bit towards some optimism and some coping. And Rachel, I guess I want to sort of get your sense of that as well. Same question I asked Emily. I mean, um, how you find your own endurance in this work, it must be something you already prepared yourself for as a researcher mentioning your earlier work on HIV AIDS. One doesn't go into that kind of work if you don't find ways to take care of yourself by doing it.
1: Yeah, I've been focusing on that area for a long time, you know, these really devastating impacts and adversity, but also, you know, the research highlights ways where we can help, you know, pathways to resilience. And I think we take comfort in that. You know, our goal as a researcher is to find a little bit of helpful information. Um, And again, I'm an epidemiologist, not necessarily a programmer. But you know, my hope is that we're helping those programmers, those practitioners, those policymakers uh, support these kids. Um, but you know, this does differ from my earlier work because when I focus on HIV and children. Um, I have some distance from that in my own family. And in this case, the pandemic is right here. Uh, I worry every day when I send my young kids to school. Um, I have young children, as does actually all, all of the co-authors uh, of this paper have young children. And I think we all have this fear, I'm sure, of what would happen if You know, I got sick, my partner got sick. What would happen to my children if, God forbid, I died? And so this is a very real question going through my mind when I I think about it in this context. And it's very scary. And I think, you know, trying to tackle it in this way through looking at the numbers, trying to contribute in a very small way is how we can help. Um, And it's not a not a large contribution, but it's one small piece. And I think each researcher puts their own small piece in and hopefully we create a push towards action, uh, a way that we can help these kids um, in in our community and hopefully globally in our, our global community as well.
0: Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Please do join me tomorrow. I'll have a vaccine vaccination roundtable with some great experts you've already heard from on COVID calls. And I'm going to have them all together in one big call. Tara Haley, Ross Silverman, Maya Goldenberg, and Dorit Reese will be with me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Real Voices, um, of expertise in the midst of this um, vaccine and vaccination period. So please join me for that. And let me thank my guests, Emily Smith Greenaway and Rachel Kidman, for this discussion um, today about parental um, uh, bereavement multiplier and, you know, this really tremendous work that you've all been doing. Thanks for making time to explain it in this detail. And we'll be looking for whatever work is going to come next out of your shop because it's a productive one. Thanks again.
1: Thank you, Scott. Thanks so much.
0: Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m.